0: Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast. Making Theology Central. Good afternoon, everyone. It is Wednesday, June the 8th, 2022. It is currently 4.10 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from Abilene, Texas. And it is time once again that we open up our Bibles and we spend a little time and exercise, Bible study exercise, all right. You may not like physical exercise. You may not wake up at five in the morning to go run two miles. You may not wake up at six in the morning and stop by your local CrossFit gym. You may not, you may not do any of that. You may not do push-ups, sit-ups, crunches. You may not do anything like that physically. But I hope if you claim to be a Christian, you do engage in. Bible study exercise, where you open the Bible, and the Bible, in a sense, becomes the gem that you visit every single day to get your spiritual workout, where you're digging into the text, you're struggling with it, you're asking it questions, you're doing Bible study methods, you're doing hermeneutical studies and hermeneutical exercises, and you're looking things up, and you're you're struggling, and you're questioning, and you're outlining, and, and you're doing all of those things. I hope you're doing that. If you know anyone who needs help to be encouraged to do that and they would like, well, something that can kind of guide them through the process, well, that's what the Bible Study Exercise Podcast series is all about. Where my goal is to try to get you off the couch. Well, actually, in this case, I I, I guess that I'm actually trying to have you sit down on the couch, right? I'm not trying to get, I don't want you to get up and leave the couch and, and, and go to the gym. No, I want you to stay on the couch, but I want you to open a Bible. In other words, I don't want you just to sit there in a passive way. I want you to be actually participating. So I guess allegorically, I want you to get off the couch. Maybe I want you to get off the couch and go sit at a table with a Bible and your reference tools. Whatever the best way to describe it, I want you engaged in actual study, not just simply listening to me turn on a microphone and go, today we are studying this and here you need to understand this. You need to understand this. And I basically just give you my study and you're like, okay, great. And you sit there in a passive way, probably forgetting 90% of everything I said. And, but you're convinced that you did something of great value. I'm convinced that I did something of great value. And reality is probably very little actually transpired or happened of any value. But if we can get people to actually dig in notebooks, pencils, Bibles, reference tools, and Bible study methods, and actually digging in, I think there's a greater chance, a greater chance of it having an actual impact instead of just pretending that we're doing something of value. I know most people would far rather just sit and not have to do anything. Just sit, listen a little bit, maybe write down a couple of points and be done with it. But I, I so desire something more. I, 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 I so desire that we actually dig in and struggle with the text. And, uh, Hopefully, we can always continue to do that right here with the Bible study exercise series. I, I hope so. I hope so. Um, yeah, it, it's just, I I know that it's a, a unique way to do so, something, but I think it's the, I, okay, I can't say the right way. Can I say that I obviously feel it's the best way? Because I think it actually tries to accomplish what everyone sets out to say that we, tr- everyone sets out saying we're going to accomplish this, but I think the methods that we use actually circumvent any, uh, any possibility of it accomplishing what we do so, because we really just say, sit and listen. So, I don't know. Yeah, I can, I can get all theoretical about it. But we're here to actually dig in. So, are you ready? All right, we have been working on now. We've been working on a study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit on pneumatology. We've been working on it. I think this is week number two. We're going to spend a total of six weeks. Remember, there is curriculum available. Just email me, newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com, and I will send you the link. The curriculum is absolutely free to you. We are grateful and thankful for those who help support the cost and cover the cost of it because we have to pay for a subscription to make that Uh curriculum available to everyone. So we are appreciative of that. But please use it. Some people are like, well, I can't support it or I can't. It does doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. You you it's there. We want to make it as it, we, we're going to keep it free and we're going to make it available to as many people as we can possibly make it available to. And typically the curriculum is there to supplement what we're doing. And we're still using it that way, but for in our last live broadcast, we spent a lot of time just working through what the curriculum had to say in its introductory study on the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. It took a very specific approach to it. Now, what we are doing, so we're, we're, we have been working specifically on the curriculum, but at the same time, at Victory Baptist Church, we started doing kind of more of just an academic, a very seminary, in fact, I'm using a textbook I used in seminary, to teach pneumatology, the doctrine of the Holy Spirit in a very academic like seminary Bible class setting. We dealt with the personality of the Holy Spirit. Then we looked at the deity of the Holy Spirit. um, Then we're going to look at symbols and images of the Holy Spirit. We're going to do, we're going to just work through that. And the goal was to get back to that tonight, but that's not going to happen. So we're just going to follow. I guess in some ways it works out better because instead of breaking up what we had done with, and we can kind of keep them separate. So, we can flow right from our last live broadcast into this one and it fits perfectly. When I say the last live broadcast, the last live one we did in the Bible study exercise series and it will fit perfectly with this. So, if you missed the last one, go back and listen and then you'll see how it all fits together. But we are looking at the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. Now, I just have to re I have to emphasize this over and over and over. I take an approach to say that it's in the minority would be an understatement. I am in the minority of the minority of the minority. And I know most disagree with me, but that's okay. I truly believe that that the church takes the concept of the Holy Spirit and what he's supposedly doing in our lives, and I think we sell it we, we It's almost like we create an advertisement campaign. Hey, when you become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit and he does all of these things. But wait, there's more. And we sell this. It's, we've got the brochure. We've got the great, you know, well-packaged commercial. We've got it all. Everything looks wonderful. But the problem is what we sell nowhere comes close to the reality That we actually live, and I think that's a major problem, and I think it creates a lot of discouragement, a lot of bitterness, and maybe it leads to a lot of deconstruction, because we sell it over and over and over and over. You become a Christian, you get the Holy Spirit, and guess what? You get power! You get supernatural power. You have the third person of the Trinity, God, the Holy Spirit, and he's omnipotent and his power is inside of you. And you can do this and you can do this and you can do this and you can overcome sin. And we we sell it like we have this supernatural power. But then look at 2000 years of church history. What do we see in the church? What do we see in the lives of Christians? Sin, 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 gossip, backstabbing, lying, Cheating, you just you just name the, the the horrible sins, or or as we've already talked about, the SBC report is just the um, latest example. Just all these horrible things, and not just in the lives of other people. In my life and in your life, we see sin, and we're like, and so some people say, well, well, you do have power, but that power cannot is not going to make you perfect. So you're saying I have power, but there's a limit to the power. But you can't tell me how much limit to the power there. It it just becomes this very like subjective, weird thing without any clear definitions. But supposedly, we've got the Spirit in us to give us power. And then, the never-ending claim within Christianity, we have the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and He leads us into all truth. Well, if if the Holy Spirit's leading you into all truth, then any interpretation you come up with that you claim came from the Holy Spirit is an infallible interpretation. And if the Holy Spirit's leading us into all truth, after 2,000 years— Shouldn't we just all be in agreement and there just be one commentary? Here's the commentary written on the Bible, and it comes from the Holy Spirit. Like, we, shouldn't we just resolve? But no, we, we, Christians can't even agree on how to outline a book, much less any major doctrine. So so I, I greatly call things into question. And because I do so, people typically disagree with me, and that's okay. I I, I make the joke all the time. You have the right to be wrong. But I, in this particular case, I just, just there's a disconnect between what we sell and what people experience. And guess what? A lot of people come into Christianity, going, "Okay, I got the Holy Spirit," and then it doesn't. Wait, something. There's a disconnect, and many of them question it. While everyone else just pretends there's no problem, and it goes from questioning to doubting to discouragement to depression to deconstructing, because it. Because they were sold a Christianity and that, and they're living a Christianity that doesn't match the brochure. And it's because we sell and and an away. So we've talked about all of that. Now the curriculum wants us to do this. The curriculum wants us to look at John chapter 15, verses 26 to 27. Then John chapter 16, 7 through 15. And we've worked on some of this. So let's start. John chapter 15, verse 26. Let's read it. But when the Comforter is come, whom I will send unto you from the Father, even, though the, even the Spirit of truth which proceedeth from the Father, he shall testify of me. And you also shall bear witness, because you have been with me from the beginning. So we learn a couple of things about the Holy Spirit in verse 26. We know that the Comforter, he's referred to as the Comforter. We know that he's referred to as the Spirit of truth. We know that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, and the Holy Spirit's job is to testify or to point to Jesus. It's not to bring attention to you, but to bring to bring the focus to Jesus. He's there to testify of Jesus. That's a little bit of information that we get. We, We spent a little bit of time looking at some of this. I'm gonna pull up the blue letter Bible app. You probably remember, um, you probably remember here. I'm going to go to John chapter 15, verse 26, and remember the Greek word used, and I know you're going to hear a lot of people say it in a different way, so that's why I'm playing the audio here, but here is the Greek word translated comforter or counselor, depending on your translation, comforter in the King James. Here is the actual Greek word because I've heard it pronounced way differently, but here's the actual Greek word. Strong's G thirty eight seventy five. Parakletos, parakletos, parakletatletos, lat, parakletos or parakletos, parakletos. That's I, I stress the lay there, parakletos or parakletatletos. I, I think I've always said it latos, but it's parakletos. But we we talked about this last time, and that's the word that means comforter, or it can be advocate all right? So the Holy Spirit's referred to it, the parakletos, the comforter, the counselor, the advocate um, that's going to come from the Father, and the Spirit of truth, the Spirit of truth, and the comforter. And there's a lot we, we. I'm not going to go back to everything we talked about in regards to that. We, we will press on and go to chapter 16, where the, uh, the curriculum wants us to go. And we read this, uh, John chapter 16, they want us to look at verse 7. Nevertheless, Jesus is still speaking, I tell you the truth, is it is expedient for you that I go away, for if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. So we. He comes, he proceeds from the Father, but Jesus speaks of sending the Holy Spirit as well. And the word comforter is used there as well. So let's just verify. I'm going to open up the antilinear. I'm going to go back to John. I'm going to go to John chapter 16. And then we're going to go to verse 7. Open up the antilinear. And here's the word comforter, and guess what word it is? Do you you think it's the same word, Greek word? What what do you think? What do you think? Same Greek word or different Greek word? What do we think? Show of hands, same or different, it is this Greek word. Strong's G, 3875, parakletos, parakletos. Parakletos, or parakletos, again. I, I think it's latas. I'm going to go with latos. Paraklatos. okay? I know you just heard it. I know, but I, I still, I'm like, I, I have to go with the way I, I learned it versus, okay, but Paraklatos. You get into that, wait, you said it different than the way I was taught it. Wait, what, what, wait, why are we saying it differently? All right, parakletos. By no means am I an expert in Greek. So, I, 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 so when I hear someone else say it, I'm like, no, that's the correct way. And then I'll hear someone else say, no, that's the correct way. I'm like, no, that's the correct way. What is the correct way? Okay, parakletos. All right, there is, so it's the same Greek word. All right, so let's go back to this. John chapter 16. Verse 7, all right. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expect, expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the comforter, parakletos, will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. So Jesus is letting them know, hey, I'm, I'm going to leave. I know that can be confusing. I know you can be worried. I know you're going to be upset. But I'm going to leave and you will get a comforter. So it's better that I depart from you, all right? Verse 8. And when he is come, now he referring to the the comforter as a person when and when he is come, not referring to the spirit as just some mindless force, but an actual person, third person of the Trinity, one God, three distinct persons, co-equal and co-eternal. All right. Not one God manifesting himself in three different ways. That's modalism. One God, three distinct persons, co-equal and co-eternal, all right? So, the the Holy Spirit here is referred to as a comforter and referred to here with the idea, with he, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So, here we we are brought into... We are confronted with the idea of the Holy Spirit. Now, there's a lot of different things we could talk about the Holy Spirit, the comforting part, but the, the curriculum here wants us to look at the convicting part. So here we are confronted with the idea of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in convicting, in convicting people of sin, convicting people of ungodliness. And so in our last episode... I tried to draw a distinction, and I think this is important. I know not everyone will agree with this, but I'm going to read a quote here in a minute, and you'll see why I draw this distinction. I, I asked everyone to meditate, to consider, to think about this idea. There is a conviction, a convicting work of the Holy Spirit prior to salvation, and there is a convicting work of the Holy Spirit after salvation, and how are they the same, and how are they different? different, right? In fact, I I went on to kind of break it down into three. Think of it this way. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit prior to salvation, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in salvation, and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit after salvation, because I think there are three different ideas or works here that we have to consider. Because I think there is a conviction the Holy Spirit brings upon everyone in the world. This is just a common conviction that is given to everyone. It doesn't lead everyone to salvation in any way, shape, or form. But everyone in the world, deep down, feels some sense of guilt. There's been too many articles written by psychologists and counselors, psychiatrists, who, who talk about the fact that the, their their main reason so many people seek them out for help and for mental health and for because they they're struggling with some inner sense of guilt this inner sense of feeling unworthy this inner sense of just feeling like they they're letting everyone down and they don't live up to this and they can't always really figure a point it, put put a finger on what is the problem it's an internal problem created by the general convicting work of the Holy Spirit and we we call and in. An, We think of it this way in in theology or in soteriology, we'll we'll talk talk about common grace, right? And effectual grace or or saving grace. We'll talk about a a general call and an effectual call, right? Well, we, we draw this distinction because there's a work that there's something that happens that that's applicable to everyone. But then there's something that happens that actually brings some people to salvation, Clearly, the general convicting work of the Holy Spirit explains why everyone just has this inner sense of guilt. Now, psychologists, psychiatrists, they will typically try to say, look, there's no reason to feel that guilt. That's guilt being imposed on you by other people's standards or other people's expectations, and you just got to ignore that, and you got to live for yourself, and they'll try to give you all kinds of counseling techniques to reject, push down, and live live and uh, above all of the those negative condemning feelings because they look at it from a humanistic perspective i think the reason people feel that oh i'm not saying that they may not be feeling that because of maybe the way people have treated them or or even because people have done things to them in a wrong way i'm saying that the the true root cause of it is because you're not right with your creator You're in rebellion to your creator. You're in violation of God's law. So there's an inner conviction there. There's an inner sense of guilt, and it comes from from a couple of things. The convicting work of the Holy Spirit in the world, general convicting, and the fact that God's law is written on your heart. You're always going to feel guilty. You're always going to feel unworthy, and you're never going to understand it. Now, you can come up with every counseling technique in the world to make you feel better, but you're trying to just push down and repress what is really there. The only solution is to acknowledge that guilt, except I am a failure. I have not lived up to God's standard. What is the solution? And then you find out that the solution is not you doing good things. It's not your righteousness. It's finding out that you needed an imputed righteousness that comes from Christ. But this is, I call this the general convicting work. Then you have a convicting work that brings someone to salvation Then we have to talk about the convicting work that happens after salvation. All right? I think this is very important. So, um, and here's the reason we talk about this, if I can find this quote, um, because I think it's so important. All right? Um, Someone put it this way, if I can find it. Here we go. Someone described it this way. The Spirit does not merely accuse men of sin, he brings to them an inescapable sense of guilt so that they realize their shame and helplessness before God. Well, he doesn't. it doesn't always bring people to understand their helplessness before God and to realize their shame. They just know they feel guilty and they may blame their parents. The parents made me feel guilty. The parents made me feel unworthy. The school made me feel unworthy. Bullies made me feel... And, and all of that may be true. You may have experienced great emotional trauma because of what other people have done to you. But even if you were raised in the most perfect environment, loving parents, affirming, everything was wonderful, there would be still something deep eating away at you. And it would be a sense of guilt because things are not right with your creator. I call that the general convicting work of the Holy Spirit. It doesn't bring everyone to salvation. Common grace does not bring everyone to salvation. The general call does not bring everyone to salvation. There has to be an effectual call, a saving grace. There has to be a a, a convicting work of the Holy Spirit that's a part of salvation because just the general convicting work just gives you a sense of guilt. Doesn't necessarily bring, because that general convicting work has to be met with, well, the uh, gospel call or the effectual call. I know we're getting to some very important soteriological distinctions, but I just want you to understand that there is a general call. Everyone feels it. They can deny it. They can lie. Deep down, it's there. They know it. They constantly feel guilt. They constantly feel unworthy. And, and look, counselors will blame it on everyone else. They will blame it on parents. And I'm not saying those other things don't have a role to play in it. But the real, it starts with you are not right with your creator. That's where it starts with. Okay. So, the Holy Spirit, so I think the Holy Spirit does convicting and, and, and first of all, in three different, I'm going to say three different time frames before salvation or um, no, I'm going to say it this way. Three different, the Holy Spirit does a convicting work in three different spheres, right? Just the general sphere of life in the human race. And that's just everyone feels a sense of guilt and that comes from the the word of God and the spirit of God, or the word, the the law of God written on the heart, and the spirit of God convicting the world. Then you have the spirit doing a convicting in the sphere of salvation, and then you have the Holy Spirit doing a work in the sphere of sanctification. So in the world, in salvation, and in sanctification. I think there's a general, there's a saving work, and there's a sanctifying work. We could do it that way. There's a general convicting work, there's a saving convicting work, And there's a sanctifying convicting work of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a good way to draw a distinction. Now, the curriculum says this. The Holy Spirit does this convicting work in three ways. All right? In three ways. Now, they're going to go a little different than what I just did. All right? I think there's, I think there's, he, he does a general convicting work, a saving convicting work, and a sanctifying convicting work. I think that's. I want you to know those. That's a threefold distinction. They're going to offer a different threefold distinction, and they're going to say this: the Holy Spirit does this convicting work in three ways. Number one, the Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit leads us to understand the evil in our own hearts. And verse nine, Jesus tied our sin to our lack of faith. A lack of faith is not merely experiencing doubt. It involves willfully rejecting the truth of Jesus. Only the Spirit can convict us of our faithlessness that has led to our sinful behavior. Now, they're getting this from this passage. John chapter 16, verse 9, or verse 8. And when he has come, speaking of the Holy Spirit, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. So please note, he's going to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. That seems to be dealing with what he does in the world. That's why I say there's a general convicting. There's a general convicting of everyone of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, that deep down, people know they're a sinner. Deep down, they know that they're not righteous. They know they're not perfect. And deep down, whether they want to admit it or not, they feel this sense that they're, 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 they have to justify their action. They feel like they're under some kind of judgment. They feel, whether they understand it, they feel like they have to justify it. They feel that they, they need a justifying reason for it. I think that has something to do with the world. Then it goes on to say, uh, of sin, because they believe not on me, of righteousness, because I go to my father and you see me no more, of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. Now, that seems to be all about what the Holy Spirit does in the world. And you could say that there's a general aspect of that, and then there's a saving aspect of that. The this curriculum seems to go right after, seems to go after the believer that the Spirit convicts us of sin, the Spirit convicts us of righteousness, and the Spirit convicts us of judgment. I'm going to stop, stop right here. The curriculum literally says the Holy Spirit does this convicting work in three ways, and it seems to apply it to the believer. The text says, And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. See, that's the world. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. The curriculum seems to making this applicable to uh, which way do you think we should apply this? I'm going to read it from a different translation. John chapter 16, verse 8. When he comes, he will convict the world about sin, righteousness, and judgment. About sin because they do not believe in me. About righteousness because I'm going to the Father and will no longer uh, and will. And you will no longer see me and about judgment because the rulers of this world has been judged. Now, I'm going to read what the rest of the curriculum has to say here in a minute. But I want us to think about this. All right? Remember, Bible study exercise. Remember, I do some of the teaching like I know the answer, some of it like I don't know the answer. Because to get, to get you involved in the conversation. Is Jesus telling them, hey, look, when I come, or I'm sorry, when I depart, I'm gonna send the Holy Spirit to you, speaking to the disciples, and he's gonna be the comforter. He's gonna comfort you, right? He's the spirit of truth. So he's gonna have a specific work in the disciples, but then he seems to leave them and say, but when the Holy Spirit comes, he's gonna come and he's going to do this work in the world. And this convicting work is not here being directed towards the disciples, it seems to be directed towards the world. And when he has come, he will reprove the world, the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Should we apply that work specifically to the general? Remember, I think there's the general convicting, the saving convicting, and the sanctifying convicting. Should this be restricted to the general convicting work that he does in the world? Or should we bring this over until what he does in us? The uh, Let me just read this again to how the, uh, the, the the curriculum handles this. The Holy Spirit does this convicting work in three ways. The Spirit convicts us of sin. The Holy Spirit leads us to understand the evil in our own hearts. And verse nine, Jesus tied our sin to a lack of faith. A lack of faith is not merely experiencing doubt. It involves willfully rejecting the truth of Jesus. Only the Spirit can convict us of our faith, faithlessness that has led to our sinful behavior. Next, the Spirit convicts us of righteousness. Jesus was referring to his own righteousness. In fact, in verse 10, Jesus tied the convicting, the conviction of righteousness to the fact that he was returning to his Father. Jesus returned to his place at the Father's right hand, attested that he is completely pure and completely righteous. Jesus is so perfectly righteous that our every word and every deed is measured against his righteousness. We will see our guilt because we are convicted of his righteousness. The Spirit convicts us of judgment. When we see our sin and contrast to the righteousness of Christ, it is clear that we deserve judgment. In verse 11, Jesus tied our conviction to the judgment of the prince of this world, a reference to the devil. The Holy Spirit convicts us of having our own hearts, the same uh having in our own hearts the same self-serving rebellion of the devil. God's purpose is not to demoralize when the Holy Spirit convicts us. He convicts us to draw us to salvation. The intention of Jesus is for us to experience his forgiveness, his redemption, and the eternal life that he brought for us on the cross. So are they are they taking this conviction and placing it in the general category and the saving category not in the sanctifying category and is that the appropriate place to restrict it so let's let's think and i really want you to think about this all right cuz so many times when it comes to anything mentioning the holy spirit people grab things and i think sometimes i think it's i think sometimes what the holy spirit is said to be doing is clearly being restricted to the disciples who are going to write the new testament And other times, I think it may have a broader application. So here, where the Spirit is mentioned, it also seems to say this is what he's going to do in the world. He's going to reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. All right? Now, of sin, because they believe not on me. Clearly, that's the world. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and and you see me no more. All right? Hey, that... That this will demonstrate that Jesus was pure, righteous, and accepted by the Father so that he becomes the perfect standard. All everything Jesus, he kept all of the law, he was perfect, that becomes the standard, and then of judgment, because the prince of this world is judged. They it it seems like that they are draw, they're they're saying that there's a general work, how this plays out, and a saving work. And I think we have to leave this. There, I I think so. I'm going to look at something. I'm going to look at a number of commentaries here. Because I think it's very important for us to determine exactly where this is referring to here. I'm going to go to John 16, 8, and I'm just going to pull up uh, the uh, Bible Hub. And I'm going to look at all the different, uh, or not all of them, but a couple of the commentaries here. All right. Uh, all right. And when, he, when, and when he is come, he will reprove the world better as in margin, convince the world. All right. Um, the conviction of the world is by witness concerning Christ. It is the revelation to the hearts of men of the character and work of Christ, and therefore a refutation of the evil in their hearts. The result of this conviction is twofold. According to, according as men embrace it, accept it, uh, uh, accept its chastening discipline, and are saved by it, or reject it, and the rejection hardens their hearts. So they're definitely putting this out. This is in the world. So I will say this is what happens. The general convicting just condemns, it condemns. And it will harden the heart unless unless God's saving, convicting, God's saving grace, God's effectual call begins to work on that sinner. So it either it's going to harden and turn against, or it's going to ultimately be used by God to bring. It. But God has the one. It's not just about my rejecting or accepting. It's God has to be involved in it. So let's apply this then in this way, right? Let's just take the we're going to use two people, all right? We'll call them person A and person B. Person A is in the world and they they're not they're not going to receive the effectual call. They're just going to re, they're going to just receive the general call. They're not going to receive a a saving convicting, just a general convicting. All right? So the person in in the world, they're going to be reproved by the Holy Spirit and by the law of God written on their hearts of sin, of righteousness and of judgment. And I think that this works in this way, that they, they're they going to know that deep down, I think every person you know, even a person who's not saved, deep down, they know that there's a right and there's a wrong. Deep down, they know that there is sin. They may not call the word sin, but they just know that there's something wrong. And they feel guilt. They feel some sense of guilt and they don't know why. They, it's like somehow in their brain, they are they know there's a righteous standard. They know they don't make it and they and i think deep down they know that there's some possibility of a judgment. I think even atheists still have some inner sense of they may publicly say, "Hey, I don't feel any guilt," but deep down they do. Because look, you get you have people who completely reject the things of God. Completely reject God, but they still will will use terms like that's right, that's wrong. They will condemn things. They will and and many of them are going to counseling struggling with some sense of guilt. Some some they don't they they feel no self-worth they they feel condemned and and the counselor will say you got to stop listening to those condemning voices you got to start listening but it's it's coming from the call is coming from inside the house it's inside of them because God's law is written on their hearts and it's coming from outside of them the holy spirit is convicting them but he's convicting them internally not that he's indwelling them but the convicting work happens inside they're just aware of this So in a sense, as the curriculum breaks it down, let me go back to the curriculum page. Sin, righteousness, and judgment. Really, the three concepts show up this way. I think this is in every person. They they just know some sense of wrong and right, and they know they don't live up to it. They seem to know that there's a standard, that they they, 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 they constantly feel like they're not living up to some standard. And of judgment, they just seem to feel whether they can put words into it that they're somehow they're con- they're condemned in some way, shape, or form. Again, they may blame everyone around them. They may blame society. They may blame religious people. They may blame their parents. They may blame their sibling. They may blame their war- boss. They're going to blame everyone. But deep down, these three concepts: sin. So this idea that I, I, somehow I'm not I'm, I'm wrong. Somehow I'm guilty righteousness there's a standard that they somehow are or they don't they can't put their finger on it but they're they're somehow judging themselves according to some standard and they feel judged or condemned and those are the three things that the Holy Spirit convicts the world of then verse nine of sin because they believe not on me the, 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 the reason they feel this is because they don't believe in Jesus if they believe in Jesus this sense of sin would be replaced with a a comfort. And an assurance, because now they would be covered in the or they would have imputed to them the perfect righteousness of Christ. You wouldn't feel guilt. I, I look, I know that I sin, and there's no excuse for any sin. Look, I I'm you can bring up every sin I've ever committed. You can go back 10 years, eight years, seven years. You can you can write out, look at the you did this, and you know what? Everything you say, probably right. Even if you exaggerated, even if you don't get the facts straight, who cares? You're right. I'm a sinner, and I'm probably even worse than you even know. And I feel horrible about it. I do. And I wish I would have never committed any sin in my life. I wish I wouldn't have committed a sin today. I wish I wouldn't have committed a sin yesterday. I wish I would never commit sin. But you know what? The only hope I have is I know that my salvation is, that all my sin, that the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to my account and all of my sin has been paid for. If I believe in Jesus, then that never-ending conviction it, it's always going to be there to some level, but there's, there's a way for it. There's, there's hope in the midst of it because I have the imputed righteousness of Christ. So the, the hope for this conviction of sin is to believe on Christ of righteousness because I go to my father and you see see me no more. Yeah, you're going to be con- you 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 will understand now where the, what the righteous standard is. So when you become a Christian, I know the righteous standard. I know now what I feel like I don't live up to. It's not what Christians tell me. It's not what the church tells me. It's Jesus Christ. He is the perfect standard. I don't live up to it, but here's the great thing. When you believe in Jesus, you see the righteous standard. You see he kept the law? He obeyed? He loved God. He loved his neighbor. He loved his enemy. He did everything right. And guess what? That righteous standard, that righteousness is imputed to me. So now when I see the righteous standard, yes, once when, when you believe in Jesus. Yes, you still feel that you're guilty, but you also feel like in my position, I'm perfectly righteous. I've kept the standard perfectly of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. You know that, Christ has judged that ultimately the world will be judged, and you know that judgment ultimately will go against sin, against Satan, against all of that. But you fear no longer that judgment because you are in Christ. So all of these things show up in the hearts of every person. Now, for the person who experiences the effectual call, that sin will bring you to Jesus that conviction of sin will bring you to Jesus that conviction of righteousness will point you to the righteousness of Christ and say i need that and it will point you to the fact he will judge but Christ is the one to save me from that judgment all right so so it 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 works in person a just to make him guilt 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 person b It will bring them to salvation and make them realize the solution is for every one of those issues. For the uh, for he will reprove the world of sin. It's because you don't believe on him. If you're brought to faith in Christ, the conviction of that sin, the answer is Jesus. The when you're convicted of a, a righteous. If you're brought to faith in Christ, that righteous standard becomes your hope because that righteous standard, that perfect standard, that righteousness has been given to you. It's been well, not get, it's been imputed to you, I should say. And then of judgment, you know that ultimately all of that's going to be judged. But your sin was judged on Christ. And they say this. God's purpose is not to demoralize us when the Holy Spirit convicts us. I said, I don't know about that. I think it is to demoralize you. I think it's to demoralize you and to break you into a million pieces where you're like, whoa, I can't even look up. I don't deserve anything but death. I think it is to break you, right? Um, And then, and when it says, uh, um, it's not to to demoralize us. He convicts us to draw us to salvation. No, think, look, there's a Millions of people who've been who, who live with that conviction and they're never drawn to salvation. To be drawn to salvation is the effectual call of God. Right? If he doesn't do this with everybody, or everybody would be saved. The intention of Jesus is for us, for us, for us is to experience his forgiveness, his redemption, and the eternal life that he brought for us on the cross. What I, what I want you to just focus on what I want you to just focus on is I want you, I really want you to focus on this. I think this is important. I want you to write down these three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment. I want you to write down those three words, sin, righteousness, and judgment. And I want you to see how those three things would convict you and how Jesus is the answer to all three. You are convicted of sin. You're convicted of righteousness. You're convicted of judgment by the Holy Spirit. I want you to just meditate on how Jesus is the solution to all three things which convicts us. Now, you say, well, I'm a Christian. I know that. But I want you to to spend time meditating on how Jesus is the answer so that you will hopefully be reminded of it. So you'll have a greater appreciation and love for the fact that he's the one who saves you from that conviction. All right? All right. Um, they said that they offer the following illustration. I sat across the table from Charles as he struggled to tell me what he needed to say. He was overwhelmed by his own sin. Slowly, he rolled out the things he had done, sins that felt entirely unforgivable to him. He stared at his hands and could not bring himself to look at me. He was feeling the weight of his sin. He knew God had called him to a righteous life. He knew his actions had earned the judgment of God and assumed God would have nothing to do with him afterwards, because of what he had done. But the Holy Spirit did not leave him there. His repentant heart was obvious, and I told him, Charles, Jesus forgives you. He finally looked directly at me with an expression that said he knew Jesus. He knew Jesus. It was true. He had been running from God, and all the time, Jesus wanted to restore him. The Holy Spirit does not convict us so that we can remain in sin. He convicts us that we can experience the grace and forgiveness of Christ, All right? Now, I don't want to move any further. So here's what I want you to do. So I want you to think about, it. again, I believe that there is a general convicting of the world that just manifests itself in everyone's life, whether they know it or not. There's a general conviction. There's a saving conviction that that convicting is then you have God's word, you have the effectual call, and that brings to salvation. All right general effectual just like we do with general call effectual call common grace saving grace or electing grace how all the different words you can use to describe it from a theological perspective okay but i think the convicting plays in that same there's the same division there so in john 16 we clearly have the general convicting and we see how this can play a role in the saving uh, conviction right sin Uh, righteousness and judgment, sin, righteousness, and judgment. Now I want you, again, I want you to write those things down, sin, righteousness, and judgment. I want you to think about how we are convicted of those three things and how Jesus is the answer to all three. Now, clearly this passage is primarily focused on the convicting work of the Holy Spirit generally and in salvation, not in a sanctifying way, not in a sanctifying way, but in those two areas, the passage is focused on convicting the world. That's what the passage is, convict, is focused on. But I want us to think of the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Now, this gets weird in the Christian world. This gets really weird in the Christian world. And I've seen this and I've heard this stated by way too many Christians. You'll get into a discussion with them about something, right? It can be anything. It can be something as serious as marriage, divorce, and remarriage, right? It can be something as serious as that. And you can say, well, you got divorced. You got remarried. I don't know if that's a biblical remarriage. I think maybe you may be living in an adulterous relationship, and every time you're together, you're committing adultery. And you can kind of point to the scripture and they may even go, well, I I think that, and then they may say something, but the Holy Spirit has not convicted me of that. It could be, it could be something that it could be something smaller about maybe the way they're treating their wife or the way the wife is responding to the husband. Or, or maybe you see, I think you're provoking your kids to wrath and that's not a godly thing, whatever the case may be. And they will be the Holy Spirit has not convicted me of that. You'll be like, Hey, you, you keep going out with the guys on Friday night and you're coming back and. I mean, clearly you've got a buzz from the alcohol. Clearly, I mean, you're you're pretty close to drink. I, I just, the Holy Spirit has not convicted me of that. And I've heard that said, and you're kind of like, well, wait a minute, what's happening here? What, what's happening here? So we, we have, this is very important. We have to establish this. Whether you feel the Holy Spirit convicting you or not, Right and wrong is not determined by the conviction you feel in regards to a situation. Right and wrong is determined by what scripture says about a situation. All right? You you may you may be in something may happen, you may feel bad about it, you think. Whatever you think about it, maybe at the time you don't even feel bad about it. Whatever the situation is, the key is that's one of the reasons we have to keep living in Scripture because Scripture is there to constantly remind us, that's wrong. Doesn't matter if you don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's wrong. Hey, that, that's wrong. You say, but I don't feel conviction. Doesn't matter. The Holy, the Word of God is there slapping you across the face going, I don't care if you don't feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You're wrong. You're wrong. That, that's why we have to constantly be studying Scripture. But some people really just say, if, the, if I don't feel the conviction of the Spirit, if the Spirit hasn't convicted me, then somehow I have freedom and I'm not guilty. It doesn't matter if you don't feel the guilt. The scriptures are the ones that tells us we're wrong. And I'm glad for that because if we rely on our own inner feeling, that's why sometimes the convicting work of the Spirit in, in sanctification I think sometimes can be a very subjective thing. And I get really bothered by this because people play some weird games with it. So I think that's the first thing when it comes to conviction and sanctification. I think we just have to realize the word of God. The word of God is the thing that tells us right and wrong, not the convicting. For the Christian, the word of God tells us right and wrong. The conviction about it is irrelevant. It's right. It's wrong. Based off scripture, not whether you feel guilty about it. I think that's number one. Number two. You would think, in theory, that because we have the Spirit living in us, that we would become, we would be the most sensitive to sin. That we would, we would know it and we would feel it. And I, and, and I, this is hard. I. This one I'm going to struggle with, and maybe I I, I kind of want to struggle with it on on purpose. I can think of times where I did something, knew it was wrong, and felt guilt for it. But I don't know if I really felt the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I think I've felt more the well, I see, it's very, it's very subjective there. It's very subjective. It's very subjective. It's very subjective. So I'm going to say this, right and wrong is not determined on the conviction you feel or don't feel. You may feel convicted by something being wrong. And actually it's not in scripture that it's wrong. It's based off what you've been taught or how you were raised. In other words, there can be a, a, a wrong kind of conviction that you think is from God when actually it's from something else. I think you sometimes don't feel conviction, but the word of God clearly says it's wrong. So we we gotta have an external source telling me right and wrong. I can't rely on this internal like, oh, I feel, I feel, that. I, to me that's just too subjective. So I think that's number one. We we, we Right and wrong is not determined by our conviction, it, it's determined by the word of God. That's number one. Number two, I I I think that's key. Number two, we have to be very careful to question whether someone had been truly convicted by the Holy Spirit or whether their their brokenness, their conviction is genuine simply because it's expressed after they get caught. We have a tendency that, that oh, they didn't show that until after they got caught. Well, just be careful because David didn't seem to show, well, put it this way. Now we have, put it this way, David, from an external point of view, we wouldn't have known, David, you know, David was there, you know, and we wouldn't have possibly known the conviction he was experiencing. Sometimes we don't see that true brokenness and true we we know in the psalms i guess what i'm trying to say we know in the psalms that david was experiencing some internal turmoil he was he was broken he was he was weeping but externally he there was no external repentance he felt conviction but there was no external repentance the external repentance did not happen until he was exposed then he felt it here's what we have to do sometimes christians are more worried well, i wonder if they're sincere i wonder if they're not sincere oh they're just sorry because they got caught Instead of worrying about whether you think it's sincere or necessary, just be grateful that they f- are sorry, they feel convicting, and then pray that that conviction will lead to true repentance, true change, and true restoration. Christians want to just show up and to judge it. Ah, well, you know what? I don't think their repentance is really—nope, not real— not real. You're garbage. Nope. Sorry. We don't believe in your repentance. You ju- you just did it because you got caught. Well, there were those same Christians would have been there going, David, you murdered, you committed adultery. Yeah committed polygamy. It was a polygamist as well on top of everything else. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We're going to just, we're just going to remove you from anything, even though God used him to write scripture. And I know what people say, but he didn't let him build the temple. That's always the go-to. He didn't let David build the temple. Yeah. He just let Solomon, you know, serial adulterer, serial polygamist, an idolater. He just let him build the temple. Oh, yeah, and write Holy Scripture. Okay, But that's a whole different story. The, the, the point is, is that the, the truthfulness or the reality of true conviction of the Holy Spirit cannot be determined by when the conviction is manifested, when the repentance is seen. Sometimes we're like, well, I don't think they were truly convicted by the Holy Spirit. They're just sorry they got caught. And I hate when people say that. Because you don't... First of all, why are you even making a judgment? You're like, praise God, they look broken. They look... What... Let's run to their rescue. Let's bring in our medical kit. Let's patch them back together, and let's work to see if we can be they can be restored to some point of usefulness. But what we tend to do is just like, did you hear? Oh, I can't. Let me let me see if I can destroy that. It's it's like we're just going to set out. They messed up, destroyed them. Now your sin, it's never worthy of destruction. But they committed the big sin, so they're worthy of destruction. It's just crazy. We can't determine right and wrong by an internal supposed conviction of the Holy Spirit. And we can't determine the genuine of repentance or the genuineness of conviction based on when supposedly the conviction really breaks someone. When it, Look, if it uses someone being exposed to be broken, then praise God. Praise God that it happened after they were exposed. Like, great, they're broken. Now we can start the process of restoring and fixing and putting back together, right? Praise God. Isn't that great that that Christianity is about redemption and salvation and restoration and reconciliation? Isn't it great that that we have a God who who can can forgive? Now I know what we always say: well, there's forgiveness, but I have a list of of the the rules. I, I have a list of what you can and cannot do. Now um, it, we, we always have our list, but praise God that. In most cases, those lists don't appear in Scripture. Now, it does give us a list of if you're in that particular state at a particular time, but but we can get into a discussion there. Just don't be so quick to dismiss someone's repentance or their conviction of the Holy Spirit because it didn't work out in the time frame that you thought it should have worked out in. Because sometimes you don't really know what's going on in the heart of someone. David was supposedly broken and weeping, if you read the Psalms, prior because he had not confessed his sin. In other words, he had not repented. But he was feeling the conviction. All right, so we can't determine right and wrong, and we can't determine the whether conviction of the Holy Spirit is present or not just because someone doesn't really show it until after they're they're been it's been revealed or they've been exposed. That's just incorrect. Now, when it comes to the conviction of the Holy Spirit, here's what I would say and sanctification. I would challenge you to see if you can just grab, just, I don't know how many, just see how many scriptures you can find that would seem to indicate the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. Again, John 16, this is the conviction of sin in the world. This is the conviction of sin and salvation. This is not talking about the conviction of sin and sanctification. What passages of scripture would you like, This is the convicting work of the Holy Spirit in sanctification. And how exactly does it work? But see what scriptures you can find. All right, we'll stop there. Uh, I want to get to John 16, 12 through 15, but I don't want us to just go past this convicting work of the Spirit. So I think there's a general convicting, there's a saving convicting, and there's a sanctifying convicting. We've talked about the general and the saving, and I've given you some things to work on and the sanctifying. Now, I know I'm, I'm just going to bring this to an abrupt end. I'm just going to leave it right there. I'm just going to leave it right there on purpose because I want it to spark conversation. And you can probably get your own stories in your own life of how this has played out and what you've experienced. Everyone, I think everyone's, I think that's the difference. Everyone has experienced something different. So it's very hard sometimes. We like we like things to be like, there's this is the rule and how it works. And I don't know if it's always that simple, but email me your thoughts, newsif at yahoo.com newsif at yahoo.com, newsif at yahoo.com. We'll talk more about this, guaranteed, All right, I, I promise you. But I just want to leave it right here. I know you're like, wait, 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 you didn't give me. I, I, I like leaving it right there so that you can go, wow, let me think about this. Now, you may disagree with everything I've said, and that's perfectly okay, because you're wrong. No, I'm joking, All right, But you can let me know what you think. All right, I'll stop right there. We'll do some more broadcast uh, tonight, all right? at some point. I don't know. Maybe here soon. All right. But you can email me. All right. Thanks for listening. Everyone have a great uh, afternoon and evening. God bless.